Happy Mother's Day. How about these guys? They did pretty good down here for some welcome and announcements. Let's go. Love it, man. Um, well, uh, I'm, I'm not a senior. I don't know if y'all uh, knew that or not. But, um, but I'm honored this morning to get to stand alongside uh, our seniors um, as they lead us. Unfortunately, we, we did have some seniors that, uh, that are away this morning. Um, we, do, we do miss them. Um, I know that Mount Perrin, they had their, they planned their senior trip in the morning of Mother's Day. Are you okay with that, Joy? We need to, some intervention. You, did you already send the email to the school? Yeah, okay. Um, so, uh, so we do have um, some out. So unfortunately, you're gonna have to put up with me for a couple minutes as I introduce our passage. But um, I'll say this too, this group of seniors is really, really special uh, to me. When I started here at Sanctuary seven years ago, uh, this is the group that stepped in as incoming sixth graders and for the next seven years, um, I just got the opportunity to really walk alongside them um, and just see what God had in store for them, see how he changed their lives. So, um, so this is a really, really special, really special group for me. Before we leave this morning, we're going to take some time. We'll pray over uh, this group of seniors and we'll bless them uh, as they prepare for a new chapter in their life. Over the last couple weeks, we've been digging into uh, Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica, and this morning we get to see how Paul closes this out, um, his first letter, before we step into 2 Thessalonians next week. Um, Carlin Lockwood, Marcella Gatti, uh, they and myself have broken down this, cha- uh, this chapter into three sections. Uh, Paul's going to show us what I believe are some of the most important practices for us as a community of believers, but also for us personally, okay? So um, I love what Matt said last week. Matt kind of set this passage up when he was talking about, um, when he was working through 1 Thessalonians 4, and, uh, and he set up this final chapter, chapter 4 and chapter 5, as these final paragraphs for us to live and to please God. This is what uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, We instructed you how to live in order to please God, Um, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. To do this more and more. Did you hear that? To do this more and more, he's encouraging us to practice the things that were instructed. And so this morning, we want to share with you, the three of us are going to share with you 12 practices to live and to please, it's going to be the longest sermon you've ever experienced in your life. Um, just kidding. Uh, we're going to go really quick through these, what we believe are 12 practices that we noticed in uh, this last chapter to the church in Thessalonica. So 12 pleasing practices. I know, it's, I know it seems like a lot. You may have to take a picture and digest this later a little bit. Um, but these are 12 pleasing practices. Practices for us as we live to please Jesus as those living in the light. Now, I don't want this word practice to scare you. Matt talked about a little bit about this last week. Um, I don't want this to scare you. I don't want our minds to immediately go to uh, legalism or something that we have to do or rules that we have to follow. These are practices. It's kind of interesting in other areas of our lives, we don't really have a problem uh, with this word. We don't really have a problem with the idea that we need to do things Right, that we need to live in a certain way or practice certain things, so that uh, we give everything that we uh, possibly can. In sports, when we practice something, we do so in order that it becomes second nature. 
In sports, we practice so that something that we practice becomes just a part of us. This is kind of uh, an interesting fact. I know we're kind of working through the, the NBA finals. I don't know if y'all are uh, fans of basketball, but listen to this stat. Steph Curry has attempted 2,000, I think this is pretty accurate, 2,827 free throws in his career. And he's made 91% of those 2,827, all right? Now, why? Why is that important? When he leaves practice, he says, I'm going to make this many before I exit the gym. I'm going to make a certain number, 50 to 100, and he practices those. Now, why is this important? Practice and repetition. Practice and repetition. It's what we do to prepare. It's what we do uh, to, to, um, to live this out. I was watching uh, the last quarter of this uh, NBA game recently, one of the finals games, and near the end, they had this, the other team had this strategy. They were down by eight, and they said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to foul the big man. Have y'all seen this before? If you're kind of old school and you walk back, watch basketball back in the 90s when it was really, really exciting, uh, then, then you would probably be talking about Shaquille O'Neal. You remember that? They would foul Shaquille O'Neal. He was he was big, he was a little bit awkward, and he couldn't shoot a free throw. He couldn't make it to save his life. So the other team, if they were down, in order to pull back ahead, they would foul the big man so that he'd miss two free throws, they would get the ball back, and they'd head down the court. All right? Now, why do they choose to pick on the big guy? Here's why. Because that guy is not making free throws a regular part of his practice. The big guy is focusing on rebounding, boxing out, posting up, Scoring down low, that's a lot of basketball terms if you don't like basketball, but he's practicing all these other things and not as much the free throws. So think about, think about this for us in, in these 12 things that we practice. Because practice was not part of the big guy's life, the enemy exploited that. The other team exploited that because practice was not a part of his regular thing that he did. And so for us... So for us, thinking about these things that Paul invites us to practice in order that we live in the light, right? We do these to please God, but also because the enemy is after us, okay? So these, 11, these 12 practices that we see today, they're not laws that Paul's forcing us to follow. Instead, they're ways that we please God by living as people of the light. These are practices of those like we heard in the first uh, seven passages of 1 Thessalonians 5, these are practices of those in the light, they're practices of those who are awake, and they're practices of those who are sober-minded. So as we move into this, verse 1 through 7, it gives us insight into the differences of those living in the light and those living in the darkness. And specifically, what it's talking about is how they see the Lord's return. And where we're going to pick up this morning as we start this um, journey of these uh, 12 practices, we're going to look in verse 8 to see our first three, all right? I'm going to call these um, preparation practices, okay? For, for, these first, uh, for the first couple that I'm going to talk about, these are preparation practices. These are practices that we use, that we practice in order to prepare our minds and our hearts and our lives to move forward at the beginning of the day. So here's what, um, here's what verse 8 says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as helmet, as a helmet. I see three practices that Paul invites us into in these. When he says, since we belong to the day, 
that he's talking about us, those who are in the light. These are practices for those who are in the light. And the first one is this. He says, be sober. Another uh, version says, be clear-headed or in the right mind. Be clear-headed or in the right mind. I I would ask you this. Do you know what it takes to be sober and clear-headed? Do you know what it takes in the morning when you wake up to be sober and clear-headed? I'm going to give you two things. I'm going to say time and I'm going to say silence, or time in silence, whichever one, you, whichever one you want. Now, if you're a little old school like me, you would call this a quiet time. And sometimes we don't like that word, the quiet time, because in the 90s it kind of got a little bit of a bad rep. When I was in high school, it was like, hey, did you check off your quiet time on the box, all right, if, if we remember it like that. All right, but there's something to this, and I don't know about, I don't know about y'all, high school, you may still feel this when you, when you hear quiet time, but as an adult now, when I hear or somebody invites me into a time of quiet, I'm like, when, when does this start? I, I would like that. I, I'm, I would be okay with that now. You want me to have a quiet time? I'll do it as long as you want me to have that quiet time. You tell me when and where. So I would, I'm going to ask you this. Paul starts it off, since we belong to the day, be sober or clear-headed. How about, I'm going to ask moms this. Moms, how do you start your day? How do you start your day? It's for all of us. I'll ask dads too. Dads, how do you start your day? Seniors, how do you start your day? Students, how do you start your day? Do you start your day sober and clear-headed or shot out of a cannon? What, What sounds more correct, more accurate for the beginning of your day? I will say this. I accidentally in the 9.15, looked at my wife when I said shot out of the cannon, and she got a little upset with me. So, um, and now she's going to watch this back and get upset again. Okay. Um, I think this is a pretty straightforward practice for us. So do you believe that it's important? I can tell you this, and I've heard a lot of people say this, I can tell a difference in my day. I can tell a difference in my day when I wake up early and clear my head. It's got, listen, my girls wake up at 6.15, 6.30, so it's got to be 5.15 for me. But my day is different. When I take the time to sit in the quiet, my day is different. And it might be true for you. I think that's what Paul's inviting us into with this practice. The second one he says is put on faith and love as a breastplate. Now you may notice that Paul does, he changes this from Ephesians 6.13 where he says put on, uh, take up the shield of faith, Right? to extinguish or uh, to guard from the enemy's uh, darts or arrows. But here he says, faith and love as a breastplate. Put on faith and love as a breastplate. So our faith in Jesus not only stops the enemy's weapons, but now it is also a protection for our hearts. So think about this practice. When you rise, you put on faith and love before you go out. Think about, think about that soul, just envision that soldier waking up and he's putting this on. He's never going to forget it. It's the piece of armor that guards his heart, one of his vital organs. And so he's never going to forget the breastplate when he suits up to go into the day. Right? So what does that mean, faith and love? Faith is this, being confidence and assured in, what, in who God says he is. So you put that on in the morning. Love is being the character of Jesus. Jesus is love. So when you wake up in the morning, do you understand this? You, you put on faith and love as the breastplate, the piece of 
armor that guards and protects your heart. Can you imagine if you walked out of the house every morning and you were suited up knowing, being confident and assured in who God says he is and who God says you are, and then you put on the armor to protect your heart where you understand and where you put on the character of Christ in your life? This is an impenetrable armor that is for our hearts, and Paul invites us to do that each morning. Number three, he says this, put on the hope of salvation as a helmet. How does the hope of salvation protect our minds? Think about how quick our minds can drift into other thoughts, into the negative, into places they shouldn't be. Think about how fast they drift there, where if we put on the hope of salvation to protect, what would it do if our thoughts were focused on the faithfulness of Jesus to save us every single day? If we put that on our minds and we are reminded of what he did on the cross for us. Think about how that would protect our thoughts. So what does this look like? I like to think of these three as maybe preparation practices, maybe when you rise practices. So these things that we, uh, that we practice in order to, live, to go throughout the day living in the light. When you, here, just a couple questions for us, and then I'm going to, um, and then we're going to continue in this passage, and, and Carlin's going to share with us, what does this look like for, for us? When you wake up, how do you begin? Is your mind immediately sent into chaos, or have you had time in the mornings to sober your mind, to clear your head, to think about who he is? And is, is your armor of God placed on you before you attack anything that day? And is faith and love guarding your heart? And is the hope of salvation protecting your mind and your thoughts? We're going to continue. That's uh, 3 of 12, okay? So we got a little bit, so sit tight. Um, But I'm excited for Carlin and Marcella to to tackle these next couple. So as we continue in chapter 5 this morning, we're going to look at four community practices. And we're going to look at five personal or individual practices that Paul talks about for us Uh, personally and individually. So we'll continue reading in 1 Thessalonians uh, 5 this morning. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Good morning. I'm super blessed to be here teaching alongside Troy and Marcella. Before we go into the four community practices, I'm just going to touch on how Paul instructs the community to treat its leaders. In verse 12 and 13, the message is pretty clear. Respect your leaders. Uh, This introduces us to the theme of community seen in the next couple of verses. Who should the leaders of your community be? Well, we can find that in verse 12b, those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. How should we treat these leaders? Well, verse 13a, with the highest regard and love. And how should members of the community live? Verse 13b, uh, live in peace with each other. In this context, living with peace looks like respecting each other's roles in the community. We're all called to be leaders in one aspect or another, but sometimes we're called to be led. Parents lead their children, children can lead other children, and who would have thought Marcella and I would be up here leading you guys? (laughs) Um, 
Moving on to verse 14, after telling the church in Thessalonica to live in peace with one another, Paul moves on from leader talk and gives the community for community practices for everybody. Number one, or I guess number four in total of the 12, is warn the idol. Dad, before you get too excited, this has nothing to do with you warning me about how many naps I take. So, The actual background behind this practice was mentioned by Pastor Matt last week in his sermon. I think the word he used to refer to it was mooching. Long story short, some members of the church in Thessalonica weren't putting in their share of the work and still enjoying the benefits of those who were. In this verse, Paul doesn't seem too concerned with the issue, but in his second letter to Thessalonica, his tone changes drastically. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 10. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we work night and day, laboring and toiling, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we do not have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. No longer is Paul telling the church to warn the idol, but he's telling them to stay away from them and not allow them to eat. Paul changes his tone so drastically from the first letter to the second letter because he needs the church to know how serious he is. In our society, it's easy to become idle and live off others' earnings. I mean, who here has heard the saying, work smarter, not harder? This isn't the mindset that Jesus desires. Jesus desires us to live with a servant's heart just as he did. It's our joint responsibility as a community to hold each other accountable for our idleness. Moving on to number five, comfort the discouraged. Imagine a really long Greek word in the place of discouraged. This is the only place in the New Testament that the Greek word is used. And while I'm not going to put it on the screen because it looks like scribble and I would butcher the pronunciation, I am going to tell you that the direct translation for it is small soul. That kind of changes things, doesn't it? We just jumped from simply being discouraged to feeling so weak that our soul has shrunk. Think about a time when your soul has felt small. How did you feel and how did it feel or how would it have felt if you had someone there walking beside you? Encouraging someone with a small soul may look like sending them a text, let them know that you're thinking about them, and maybe even, add, maybe even adding an encouraging scripture in that text. It may look like planning a time to get lunch and hearing them talk and just give their life to you in a little blurb over lunch. And it may even be taking that call in the middle of the night to come and sit with them in the darkness. That may sound pretty intimidating, but that's why God calls us to comfort the discouraged or small souls as a community. It's so much easier to pour into someone when you know that you're not the only one replenishing them. Number three, or six, if you're keeping count, the third practice is a common practice preached in the Bible. It's an individual and communal practice, but for this context, we're going to focus on what helping the week looks like as a community. The week can be described in a variety of circumstances. Examples of weak groups in a community are widows or widowers or really anyone grieving, those struggling financially, those who are mentally or physically disabled, and the list goes on. Our church does a really good job at providing opportunities to help the weak through programs like group studies, DMD groups, divorce care, grief share, and other ministries like these. I like to think that if Paul were around when 
our, well, if Paul were around right now, he'd look fondly on how our church reaches out to the weak in our faith family. Paul emphasizes helping the weak because the people God uses most are the people considered to be weak. 2 Corinthians 4.7 says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Have you ever dropped a clay pot on the ground? Chances are, it broke. 2 Corinthians compares us to clay pots because we are breakable and weak, while God is not, and he still uses us day in and day out. Number four in community practices, be patient with everyone. Trust me, I know how hard it is to be patient with people who may be different from you or have different viewpoints than you, but God made us each unique. Working as a community means working alongside people God made to differ from you. God wants us to love everyone, and a part of loving is being patient. 1 Corinthians 13.4, we've all heard it. Love is patient and kind. It is not jealous or conceited or proud. It is not arrogant. Being patient with everyone as a community looks like working together peacefully to better the community as a whole. If we jump down to verse 15, we'll see that Paul instructs the church in Thessalonica to work together for everyone's good. Not just what's good for you, not just what's good for your family, not just what's good for your friends. We work together to grow our community and achieve what's best for us. Before I hand it over to Marcella, I want to leave you with this challenge. What would it look like for you to live one of these communal practices this week? Paul's focus here is an encouragement for us as a community of believers, but for the next couple passages, he's going to shift his focus to individual practices. Let's keep reading in 1 Thessalonians. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good, reject every kind of evil. Good morning, good morning. I'm very excited that I get to share this passage of scripture with you all. And this is a passage that we've all heard in the church countless times, but I really wanted to dive into what this scripture means, and more importantly, how it can be implied to our lives. I'm going to just jump right in from where Carlin left off, which was focused on the communal encouragement. And when I begin reading, it's going to take a shift from this communitive, and then it's going to jump into the individual. Paul begins this passage saying, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Seems simple enough, right? The thing that I really want to dive into is how we interpret this scripture. To rejoice is to have joy, and that joy that is referred to in this verse comes from a place of true delight in the Lord and what he has done and what he continues to do. Rejoicing is not always going to look the same for everyone, and rejoicing is not always going to be what we feel like doing. Seeing that it's Mother's Day, I felt that it was only necessary that I would share a story about my mom that to me is the epitome of what a rejoiceful spirit looks like. When I was little, my mom used to wake me up to my favorite song in the whole world, This Little Light of Mine. And most mornings, as most kids would be, I was not very enthusiastic. I didn't want to get up with her and dance and jump around. But the thing that really stuck with me are the mornings that I did get up and I did start jumping around with her on the bed. And just the feeling of joy and wanting to rejoice in the beautiful morning that God had created stuck with me throughout all of these years so that I could tell it to you today. 
Sometimes as a child, it's easier to rejoice in the Lord. And I feel like that is because we do not have the trials and burdens of life on our shoulders yet. But I feel like we can still learn a lot from our younger selves. Now I'm going to shift to this concept of praying continually. This can often be misinterpreted when reading in a very literal sense. Prayer doesn't have to be the typical kneeling, eyes closed, head bowed prayer. Prayer is communication with God and prayer is relationship. Just think about how often you communicate with those people who are the closest to you. Some of you every day, several times a day, maybe you spend that entire day with those people. When you look at prayer as a way of furthering and deepening your relationship with the Father, it's important shifts. Like any close relationship in your life, it's equal parts communicating and listening. Prayer can also be silent, wanting to hear him speak and just allowing yourself to have silence in his presence. These practices are easier said than done to live out in a fallen world where there is sadness and there is heartache and there is pain. Paul addresses this in verse 18 when he goes on to say, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I also want to look at another verse in Psalms 35, which reads, Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. I love how this so beautifully paints the idea and acknowledgement that we will suffer on earth. And suffering is part of God's will for each one of us. But that suffering, the pain and circumstances that don't make sense to us is part of a bigger purpose and that purpose is good. So although rejoicing can be seemingly impossible, we can rejoice in the knowledge that he is using it for our good. When I first read over this next passage, I had to ask myself what it even meant. In verse 19, it continues, do not quench the spirit. This question first took me back to when Jesus had risen and he is preparing to ascend into heaven when he leaves his disciples with direction and encouragement. We're now going to flip over to Luke 24, verses 46 through 49. Jesus says to his disciples, This is what is written, The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with the power from the high. The promise of the Father was the Holy Spirit. And until that promise was fulfilled, he told the disciples to stay in the city. In other words, you, my disciples, are not equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit that you need to carry out his will. When we become believers, we are given the same power of the Holy Spirit. And we are expected to carry out his will. When we become believers, that is the most important thing that we are called to do is to make disciples out of others. And how would we do that if the power of the Holy Spirit is quenched within us? Up until this point, Paul has been giving instructions on what to do, and finally we get a do not. In these verses, Paul is speaking on these practices for Christians to, not part to practice these practices are just a few of the ways the spirits can become quenched. Do not encourage the disheartened. Don't be patient with everyone. Don't strive to do what is good. Do not rejoice always. Do not pray continually. I hope you kind of are catching the pattern that Paul has laid out for us. So before I get into the last few verses, I want to leave you with these questions. What in your life is quenching the spirit? And what do you think is holding you back from fulfilling the will of God? In verses 20 through 22, Paul takes a third shift. Verse 20 starts with, do not treat the prophecies with content, but test them all. 
hold on to what is good, and reject every kind of evil. This verse unpacks a lot, although it does seem small, and it would take me much longer than just three minutes to fully unpack, but I'm going to focus on why Paul is writing these verses and what the situation was that led to Paul writing about these prophecies. Prophecies are meant to edify the church. Those who prophesy offer the church encouragement, strengthening, and comfort, as stated in Corinthians 14. Paul is addressing the people of Thessalonica in response to false prophets that are spreading unreliable information with the people. These verses are in no way saying to reject the prophecies, but instead it is a wake-up call for the people of Thessalonica to distinguish between false and genuine prophets. Although Paul was writing to the Thessalonians, there is much that we can take away from this passage. We as Christians encounter false prophets, and we have the ability to fact-check with the ultimate tool that probably every single one of us has one or more in our house, God's Word, the Bible. We have to actively practice using his word, and not only using it, but knowing it, in order to steer away from false prophets. The first thing that we can always look for is, does what this person is saying point to Jesus, and does it testify his son? Before Troy comes up and closes this out, I just wanted to take a look at the list that we've compiled of all of the practices we see in these passages. As Christians who are walking in the light, we should be keeping ourselves accountable of these things. Looking at this, le- this list, I see so many areas where I can improve to strengthen my relationship with Christ. Through the rest of service and worship, I'd like us all to consider these practices and question what areas do I fall short in and where are my shortcomings in these areas affecting the power and presence of the Holy Spirit within me? May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Well, um, 12 practices. Pretty simple, right? Pretty easy, uh, light Sunday morning. Um, I love what Paul's saying here. He's summing up everything, a lot of the things that, uh, that Paul has instructed, that the Lord has instructed us in ways to live. But I want to clo- close with this before we pray, continue in worship, um, and then have the opportunity to bless and pray over our seniors. I want to point out one passage uh, that Avery just read, and I think this is just a beautiful way to sum it up. He says, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Let's say it one more time. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. So the one who calls you and has instructed all of these things, the one who we live in light of, the one who we live to please, he's the one that does these things. He's the one that uh, creates the fruit inside of us because of these practices. He's the one that uses our lives through these practices to glorify him. I think that's super important for us to remember.
I want to remind you uh, this morning, as we continue in worship, we do have communion uh, in the corners of the room. Also up here, invite you to do that if that uh, is a way that you want to worship with us this morning. Let me pray for us, and, uh, and we'll continue in worship and close this morning. Father, thank you for, um, thanks for these seniors. What a gift um, they've been to me over these past uh, seven years, and um, they have taught me a lot. Um, Father, I love the transformation that has happened in their hearts and in their minds because of you. Um, God, I pray that as they step into this new chapter, a difficult chapter, um, one filled with uh, different um, challenges, hardships, temptations, God, that you would that you would just remind them of the things uh, that you have said to them, the things you've spoken to them, ways that you have revealed yourself to them. Um, so, Father, thanks for them. We just pray blessings uh, over them as they prepare for, uh, for this new season. God, thanks for, um, thanks for the opportunity to live in the light. Um, thanks for what you have called us to. Thanks, for, thanks that as we read these practices, we don't have to be burdened uh, or heavy laden with them. Um, God, you have given us these not to make, not to trap us, um, not to make life boring, not any of that, Father. You have given us these practices to live by so that we can have life and have life to the full. So God, help us to walk in you, Father, and we just invite you to do it. We invite you to do it because you are faithful. So God, we love you. We thank you for um, who you are and for this morning. I pray that you would receive this worship as a pleasing offering and aroma. It's in your name we pray. Amen.